0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome now servings, Ken Concepcion. In today's episode, we're gonna talk to Ken about the must-have cookbooks to add to your collection, how a bookstore can create community. And we'll hear Ken's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Last episode, we talked about how Julia was obsessed with bread. Well, she was also pretty obsessed with cookbooks. She had a large library, including rare antiquarian cookbooks, and a lot of contemporary ones collected over many years. Who didn't bring Julia a signed copy of their latest cookbook? She was often drowning in them. Before Julia returned to California and moved into a small apartment, she donated her cookbook collection to the Schlesinger Library at Harvard. Her books join the Schlesinger's collection of Julia's personal and professional correspondence, as well as a huge number of her husband Paul's photographs. Want to know what was in Julia's cookbook collection? It's searchable online, and the Schlesinger can also give you a list to review. Someone else who shares Julia's passion for cookbooks is Ken Concepcion, We met Ken when he participated in a panel discussion about independent cookbook shops and the daring souls who run them during Cherry Bomb's Julia Jubilee last year. Ken spent two decades as a chef, including rising to chef de cuisine at Wolfgang Puck's Beverly Hills Steakhouse Cut. Looking for a more balanced lifestyle outside the professional kitchen, Ken, together with his wife, Michelle Munkall, opened Now Serving in 2017. Then and today, it is Los Angeles's only dedicated cookbook store, among a tiny number nationwide. Now Serving sells new and vintage cookbooks, as well as a curated selection of kitchenware from a storefront in downtown LA's Chinatown. Ken and Michelle are first-generation Filipino-Americans. Ken grew up in New York City, graduating from Wash U in St. Louis, with degrees in creative writing and painting. But he was drawn to a career in food, having grown up cooking for his younger brothers while his immigration lawyer father and sales director mother worked long hours. He traces his interest in cookbooks to his first job after college, working for a large independent bookstore where he began his own cookbook collection, making good use of his employee discount. This led him to pursue on-the-job culinary training, working in some of St. Louis's top restaurants, before moving to L.A. to work for Wolfgang Puck. Ken joins us today to tell us about running a bricks-and-mortar cookbook store in the digital age, and through a pandemic, and shares insights about up-and-coming and already great food writers. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you here and talk about now serving and your your insights on on the world of cookbooks. So, let's start at the beginning and and the crazy idea of like what on earth led you to open a physical bookstore dedicated to cookbooks in the modern age and especially after LA's beloved The Cooks Library had closed 8 years before
3: that. That's a great question and and honestly when I was leaving Cut um, in 2016, and everyone would, was asking me what my plan was and if I was opening a restaurant. Um, and I I kind of said, you know what? I think we're going to open up a cookbook shop uh, in, in in Chinatown. You know, that was such, you know, the look on people's faces was, it was definitely a surprise at the very least. Um, and... Uh, and much to the chagrin of of my of my folks, they were also like, "Why are you leaving this? You know, you're running a Michelin star restaurant. Um, Wolfgang Puck is, you know, one of the most well known chefs in the world, um, so on and so forth. So, but we really wanted to, you know, number one, do something a little bit more personal uh, for my wife and partner Michelle and I. Um, and I wanted to connect with people on a in a different way than um, working in a restaurant. I mean, working in a restaurant and feeding people that's it is one of the most um intimate and unique ways to connect with uh, a guest because you can actually see them eating the food that you're making and and the reaction that makes and and it's honestly it's quite uh quite fulfilling and and enriching but what i realized once we opened the shop was i was michelle and i were getting to know folks on in, on a different level of what they like to read and more importantly what they like to cook at home um along with you know professional cooks and chefs and bakers uh who i knew in the community here in los angeles That was really eye-opening and honestly, it's still so gratifying today.
2: That that that's a really uh, lovely way of describing it, and I think I want to pick up on that in a few minutes about c- community being a big part of what you've created, and and I think that lays the foundation for that explanation really well. But I do think it's also important, especially for younger people who may have only been in like an Amazon physical bookstore or a Barnes and Noble. You could you describe, since we're on radio, the the physical like.
3: You know the size and style and shape of your store. Absolutely. So the shop is quite intimate. It's um it's it's tiny. It is less than 500 square feet. Uh, We have you know oversized bookshelves, which are not what you would typically find in an on your average bookstore. So. They can hold uh, large format books, um, so it almost feels like, and it's it's a, it's a look that we wanted to pr- to pursue is that it feels like you're in someone's home library. Um, and back to your question about you know um, certain online behemoths, we you know being a, a brick and mortar bookshop, let alone a cookbook shop in the digital age. You know, Michelle and I, we really wanted to be what Amazon wasn't you know we there's no way that any bookstore or retailer for that matter can compete with you know the margins and the prices that someone like Amazon does, but what we can offer tenfold is customer service um connecting with the guests and really curating because we were, we're so such a small physical space that allows us to really curate and cherry pick what we love and what we feel, you know, naturally able to describe and, and be enthusiastic about with the guests. Um, And we don't have to bring in everything, you know, and I mean, literally there is no there's, we don't have enough space already uh 4 years into it uh for all the books that that are coming in um uh, throughout the year but you know the best the best uh excuse we have for you know let, let's say not carrying a book or not having a book is we just don't have space for it so we really focus on who our customer is and um, if they would appreciate and find a, a title interesting, but also what we love, and we try to make sure that we can convey that excitement.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you, so you just described that your inventory, partly because of your size, but also partly by strategic design, is more limited, and you're not carrying like every cookbook that's coming out. So how do you make those selections? Is it, is it really like a like you said, just your personal taste married with kind of you gotten to know your customer base and the type of books they respond to?
3: Yeah, it it is a mix of that. It's, um, you know, when we first opened, you know, I told Michelle, like, if we have the LA, you know, chef and professional cook community kind of co-sign on us, I think, you know, that would be really what we would need to to survive and prosper. But uh, much to my surprise, and, and it's amazing, is the people who came out and really ca- have kind of taken now serving from that kernel of being a chef's hangout to a full-fledged bookstore for the community is... Are the home cooks? It's it's the it's the book lovers, and we you know the way that has mirrored how the cookbook industry has also kind of shifted, and we can talk about that a little bit later on. But um, it's fascinating to see how many um, home cooks have really you know come out here in LA or when they're in town visiting. Um, yeah, the, the and again back to what you're saying about what the inventory. It's really a mix of of who our who our customer base is, the physical plant of the space here, and honestly, what we kind of gravitate towards. We don't we don't have a book on you know wh- you know thirty things to make in your air fryer. We don't we won't <laughs> we won't stock that. Um, we don't have uh, you know, every book on the latest uh, diet trend. Because frankly, from what we feel is, if you, if you're a, a guest looking for that, most likely you will turn to an online resource instead.
2: Mm. Do you feel like
3: the customers
2: and, and people that gravitate to your store are looking for kind of storytelling as much as they are as some like specific genre?
3: Oh very much so. I think the trend in it's not even a trend. I think it's more of a movement in the cookbooks landscape is authors finding their tribe you know telling their story about whether it is an immigrant heritage or um, some something as simple as you know growing up and those influences in their. Either their cooking or a cuisine they are entrenched in and celebrating. And that's really reflected in what our guests are looking for and really gravitate to. They're they're not just looking for um, you know, what to make for dinner in 30 minutes. It is really they're looking for something to kind of take home, seek their teeth into and and share with their family and friends, um yeah our our guests are so savvy and and we're just we're always we're continually learning from them.
2: I also feel from looking at your inventory and it, it is a little bit maybe an intersection of your background and just more opportunity and I, a certain generation of people coming to age but i I would say you're it's maybe not that it over-indexes with Asian American or Asian-related, and, and that's the whole diaspora um, of East Asian, South Asian, whatever it is, but that's very reflective for those who don't know of Los Angeles, which has a massive Asian American population from all different parts of the world, um, whether it's Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, people from the Philippines, people who are descendants of people from Vietnam, but it's kind of like you're reflecting what is very much a part of modern Los Angeles, but by stripping away some of the books, like the Air Fryer books that you mentioned that you don't relate to, they kind of stand out more, and that is kind of syncing up well with the current life in L.A. and what people are gravitating to, or do you think that's not a good characterization?
3: No, that's really really on the nose because – um, you know, we do understand that as uh, as a as a business, as an independent business in the digital age and on social media, we do have some somewhat of a platform. Um, we do want to celebrate certain uh, authors, cuisines, and um, immigrant communities, but also j- uh, just to be able to kind of really connect with who our guests are we have to make a deliberate intention to reflect the the diversity here in Los Angeles you know our our most popular genres in the shop you know they easily throughout you know throughout the years we've been open it's um in no particular order it's like korean Mexican or Latino, it is uh, Asian, and all the all the countries in, in that that covers that. It is uh, vegetarian and plant based. It's, you know, that is in a bubble. That is really reflecting our customers' taste and uh, what they are eating and what they're cooking here in LA.
2: And maybe that's a great segue into the fact, or I don't know if it's a fact, but what my observation that now serving has very much become and garnered a reputation as not just a bookshop or cookbook shop, but a community gathering space. And I know you've done that in part from events, but was that, you know, in your description of why you went this direction, it sounds like it was intentional. Was that a goal from the very beginning, or was that also something you developed? out of the niche and kind of how have you tried to foster that? Uh, I would
3: say it was, it's definitely been a goal that we thought about uh, from the beginning, you know, just in, just in the the idea of, of what Michelle would call, you know, the place where chefs would come to hang out. And when you think about that, uh, whether it's being, uh, you know, a baker from a local a local pastry shop in Atwater Village, or it's uh, a fine dining sous chef from Beverly Hills, or someone who's working uh, on a taco truck. I think, and then you having those those people in the shop, and kind of like because it's it's such a frankly a, a small space. Um, you can kind of see what other people are picking up and putting down and and what we really relish is you know the kind of like the cross the cross across the shop banter of like, oh, you know I work here, you work there and um th- and then extrapolate that to the home cooks and and the book lovers and the people who are just coming in to who are really just curious you know you' it 's so uh, it's still surprising to me, Todd, when uh, someone will come in and they'll look, look around and they'll they will say, "Is this all cookbooks?" And they they would think that we came up with this idea of of a bookshop just focused on cookbooks. And you know, I I'll I'll say, you know, thank you, thank you for the thank you for that. But it's not we didn't come up with this idea. We're just celebrating this this genre of 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 bookstore and of the end of the book
2: too yeah i know I, I i know you're very aware but people around the country may not be as aware of their cookbook only stores used to exist more widely never like the majority but much most major cities had one and they're kind of become an endangered species but in turn that's made the few survivors you know, treasures and treasured by people. And hopefully the the lead that you and Michelle have taken will show an example of of how you can find your niche by being very, very purposeful about what you do do and what you don't
3: do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, what we have really um, strived for is connecting with the community here, whether it be through, you know, the in-person events that we did in the before times, before the pandemic, um, where you know, uh, frankly, we miss them, is where you know, upwards of forty to fifty people would come in and and squeeze into the shop, uh, listening to an author and and a moderator uh, talk about uh, their book and talk about their stories. To when we pivoted, um, you know, in 2020 and shifting every all our event author events to the virtual space. Um, and we continue to do that as well. Um, yeah, we're, and then, you know, we have also done different sorts of outreach as far as, uh, um, community events and not in, not only just in LA, but also, um, in other parts of the country. Well, I have to ask you about this because I have a very
2: personal affinity and, and I hope I'm not calling you out on something you don't want to talk about. But do you still have plans to open a companion luncheonette or is that on hold or or an aspiration? Or it it's no longer a focus?
3: That's a great question. Um and we do we get asked that um, you know, often. The plans right now that I would say is we really want to give now serving the cookbook store the proper space it needs to kind of grow into um, what we feel is a, what would serve our us operationally better and our guests. Um, so we're ho- hoping to expand the shop next door, uh, which would also include like a demonstration kitchen if uh, there's an author or a chef that – wants to do an event and talk about their story or their book. Uh, and that's another kind of like piece that we would love to be able to offer there. So that is, that's definitely, um, you know, a, a plan, a project that we have for that.
2: Well, if I can put a plug in for pursuing So my grandparents ran a luncheonette on Long Island for a decade and what I I never got to see it. It was they had already sold it by the time I wasn't around. But from talking to my dad in particular about growing up there, um, it really was a community gathering place. It had a very for those who they're kind of mostly I know them in the New York context, but they're unique animal because they're generally open for breakfast and lunch and closed by dinner time, and they. Also, at least historically, my grandparents won. It was basically short order food and like – so like sandwiches and hamburgers and fries and they had a soda fountain. And then they sold stuff like magazines and newspapers and in those days, cigarettes when they were considered healthy. But it also was a place where the community came to eat. My dad was like – kids came from the high school to have lunch. People ate breakfast there before they took the train into the city and, and – um, I can see also that you could combine it because it had an open kitchen. So you could combine the sort of luncheonette concept with a kitchen that you could use as a demo kitchen. So that that's my pep talk for pursuing it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, listening to you talk about, uh, about that luncheonette, you know, my affinity and love for luncheonettes uh, has not waned at all. Um, and it's definitely something that i've always loved reading about and you know and seeking them out um just as much as you know when whenever michelle and i would travel um we would also kind of seek out uh you know cookbook shops in the same kind of fashion too in in whether it's a city or a town that we were in um and that's also a big reason why we opened it now serving as well as as you said before um It had been nearly nine years since uh, there was a cookbook shop here in Los Angeles and when we opened in 2017.
2: Okay, we're going to take a break and we'll be back to get Ken's recommendations on the must-have cookbooks, at least in his worldview. So stay with us.
1: Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the executive director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time in restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to Ken Concepcion, co-owner of Now Serving, Los Angeles' only bookstore dedicated to cookbooks. So, Ken, I know that asking you straightforwardly, like, what's your favorite cookbook of last year is a little bit like choosing amongst children. But I thought maybe there were some that just really stood out to you in your memory for a variety of reasons that that you wanted to kind of give a shout out to for us.
3: Absolutely. And I think it's funny that question is often asked of us, you know, someone will come in and they'll say, they'll look at, you know, the hundreds of titles that we have and they'll say, what is your favorite book here? Uh, and I always say, Well, it kind of depends on what you're hungry for. Uh, And if you're a music lover, that's like saying, that's like asking what's your favorite song. Um, But I do have a few here that I'd love to talk about uh, from last year. Um, There is a wonderful book from Yasmin Khan, who is a, a UK writer and food personality. She's an advocate for human rights and refugees. The book is called Ripe Figs, and it talks about the refugee population in Turkey and Greece, Um, and it's so eye-opening about the food that they're making in these refugee camps or in these communities that they've kind of like carved out these insular worlds within a different country that they're in. and the, it's a beautiful book. Uh, and Yasmin always makes this kind of personal connection uh, in her books. And Ripe Figs is uh, an astounding kind of example of that. There's another title that we love uh, called T- To Asia With Love uh, by Hetty McKinnon. Um, it is a vegetarian book that reflects and kind of honors Hetty's Cantonese heritage uh, but it's also through this prism of being an Australian and then also being an Austri- Aussie expat in Brooklyn and it's such a wonderful uh, reflection of, of her story and she really honors um, her Asian heritage um, with these recipes. There is a a stunning book from Matthew Rayford, who is a chef and farmer um, just out of Savannah, outside of Savannah, Georgia, called Bress and Yam, which is about the Gullah Geechee cuisine and, um, and just actually his story of growing up on a farm and moving away and then coming back. Uh, and it, he is such an incredible storyteller that that book is, is quite phenomenal. Um, And then one more I'd love to mention is uh, Molly Baz's Cook This Book, which was our most popular book uh, last year. And as far as a general cookbook, it kind of blew the doors off and everybody really fell in love with Molly and her cooking.
2: Oh, I, Ken! I can't tell you how much I love all of those references, and I'll 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 tell you why, and I'll tell the audience that Ken and I did not discuss this before the show. But if you want to know more about ripe figs and Yasmin Khan or Bress and I Am and Matthew Rayford. Regular listeners will have already heard our interviews with them, but if you didn't, you can just go to heritageradionetwork.org and put their name in, and you can and find the back episode with them. My colleague Lauren Salkeld at the Foundation Who Helps Produce the Podcast has worked with Hetty McKinnon several times, and Molly Baz is soon to be seen in a New Julia-related project. So those are amazing Um kind of kindred spirit kind of, uh, t- uh, fit. So that I, I loved hearing that. So thank you. And, um, I, and I fully endorse your recommendations. So going back when I, cause I thought you were going to say the answer is when pers- someone asks you what the favorite, your favorite book in the bookshop is, you're like all of them. But I was curious what you're, just cause I was also so thrilled by what you just said. When you're not talking about the newest cookbooks or the latest cookbooks, and if someone's coming in saying, you know, I I love them, I've built this library, but I, I'm trying to think of, you know, am I missing stuff or what haven't I discovered? Are there certain books that you know have you feel have really stood the test of time? And I know you sell vintage books or old older books as well, or maybe what used to be called used books. Um are there a couple that you recommend that you you find yourself suggesting to customers over and over again?
3: Uh, t- totally. And you know, it's a real pleasure to kind of introduce um, a guest to an older book that's been, that ha- that didn't just come out you know a couple of years ago or so. Um, from just kind of like my personal story as a as a. Someone who worked in the restaurant industry and did not uh, go to culinary school and kind of made cookbooks my own personal education, along with learning on the job. Um, Zuni Cafe by Judy Rogers is an all timer for me. Um, And every time I flip through it, you know, it reminds me of me being a cook and trying to figure out these techniques um, that, in, you know, back in the late 90s and early aughts, those techniques were really kind of revolutionary as far as like pre-seasoning meat, um, something as simple as like a short rib or a hamburger uh, before uh, that has now become almost like n- a natural practice. Uh, and I really think that so much of what is in Zuni Cafe, cook the cookbook is so relevant even today. And you can go to any kind of like, Modern American or modern Italian restaurant, for that matter, in the U.S. and kind of see where they've kind of found their their link to to Zuni Cafe. And
2: that's an interesting one because isn't it? It's kind of like a hybrid between a chef's cookbook because she was running a restaurant, but it wasn't a formal restaurant, so the food is kind of closer to home cooking. Is that or am I off totally off base? No, no, that's that's
3: totally. No, that's totally correct. I think uh, it appealed to, you know, it appealed to the pro- to professionals, but it also appealed to the home cooks. And there was so much in there as far as like she's got pages and pages about like projects, like curing your own meat, curing your own meat for a salumi or um, fermentation projects, uh, pickles and marinades and sauces, and. A lot of it is so technique driven, but it still kind of really honors the simplicity of what she was doing with, you know, the amazing uh products we here we have here in, in California and in the Bay Area. Um so I just love kind of personally just kind of going through it and then and then if we have someone here in the shop who's looking for something um like that. I always kind of you know pull that off the shelf.
2: And is it one that you? Because I'm not sure. It's even is it in print still, or do you have to source used
3: copies of it? Oh no, it's definitely um, it's. I'm happy to say it's in print, and um, uh, we you know we always make sure we have at least you know five or six copies on hand okay
2: I'm hoping you get a run on them after the episode
3: aired. yeah that would be great is there a,
2: a, is there another one you wanted to comment on or is
3: that the one that sort of looms the largest for you um there's a there is a, a couple other ones that I'd like to to mention um there's food of life by uh najme Bat- Batmanglish, manglish um, who is you know probably in in what I've kind of learn to know here at the shop is she's kind of like the premier uh food writer and cookbook writer of Persian food um at least as far as books in English uh, that we have access to so she's written Food of Life she's written a book called June um and she most recently wrote Cooking in Iran but Food of Life was her first book that she wrote uh, I believe in around one thousand nine hundred and eighty five when she emigrated uh, from iran to um, to the d c area and it 's really a celebration of the micro regionality and the products and the ingredients and the flavor profiles of persian food and you know it is it's it 's kind of an honor it 's always an honor to 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 see that, you know, someone like Julia would really embrace what um, Najame has done. And um, I, I really think of them as being kind of like two kindred souls. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you.
2: Was there a third that you wanted to, to call out? Uh, uh,
3: yeah, there's a... As far as a recent one, um, it's still astonishing to see... Uh, how many people really connect with um semi-nosrat's uh salt fat acid heat and you know I it's it's kind of it might be a hot take to say that it is one of the most you know influential books in the last you know 15, 20 years. But you know, when you go to someone's when we could go, you know, when we could always go over to anybody's houses at any time, uh uh you know we would see this book on their shelves and i think it's really a reflection of you know a new generation that has grown to love cooking and has fallen in love with food uh and also other uh, other generations that have always um had their favorite books and they find this l- kind of like live thread within Samin's writing and her recipes which are so um So easy to follow, and and her voice is so welcoming and nourishing that um, it's it's really amazing, especially for a book that doesn't have any pictures in it, Todd.
2: I fully agree. I totally endorse that. And I think that Samin very much is in in that sense as a food writer, an incarnation of Julia, because she had that same approach of like, I was always confused about these things and no one ever explained it to me in the professional world in a way that I could get. So I've sort of figured it out. And once I figured it out, I wanted to share that with you because I'm guessing you wanted to know this too. And that I think came through so strongly in Julia's writing and is one of the not the only thing about Zamine's work, but, but one of the things about that book that, as you say, it doesn't fit any of the current trends of, you know, highly photographic or um, taking you on a transfer, transportational journey.
3: So I totally agree. No, and I think it, the fact that there's – it's illustrations as opposed to, you know, stylized food photographs really makes it um, – uh, not intimidating to to tackle any of the recipes in there. Yes,
2: and that I assure you, I assume you will agree. Though that is not to say that you you don't, because I certainly do appreciate great
3: food photography when you see. It. There are so many stunning books out uh, now, and in the last few years, that it's remarkable to kind of see how how food photography and and food styling and and the work they do. It really is is like you know, a synergetic moment uh, to, to put that idea across what they want to do in that book.
2: So with that in mind, are there
3: books, and I a,
2: for those maybe who don't follow the market as closely as you and I do, you know, there's been a huge amount of disruption from the pandemic, mostly related to production, and both being able to do all the things you have to do to get a book to print, and then once you print the book, getting them to market. So it's kind of, messed up the usual predictable cycle of what's coming in spring and fall. But with that being said, are there some cookbooks that you know that are co- or expected to come out in 2022 that you're excited about getting your
3: hands on and then sharing with your customers? Totally. And I, you know, we're kind of bracing ourselves here at the shop because just what, what we've seen um, down the pipeline, it looks like this spring season is going to be maybe the biggest one that we've we've personally been involved with and 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 we can't even imagine what the fall cookbook season is going to look like it it really looks like this will this year is going to be and even after last year i said this too was a banner year i think it the the cookbook landscape is is incredible um there are a couple Uh, A a few here that I'd love to mention that we're really excited about. Um, Eric Kim's Korean American. uh, He is a a cooking columnist for the New York Times food section. uh, And we're really thrilled to kind of see the continuation of the um, Asian American, Korean American uh, diaspora cooking and just, you know, following his story. There's a lot of excitement about that. there's a lot of excitement about uh Kenji Lopez Alt's The Walk, his official follow-up to the seminal uh, the food lab cookbook uh that we're really thrilled to see. And I frankly, the subject matter, uh we we really kind of we're really missing a, a, a modern book on walk cooking and uh are thrilled to kind of see that come to our shelves. And then there is another book about uh, a personal journey and personal cooking from a chef standpoint is uh, My America from Kwame Onowachi. Uh Kwame most famously is uh, a chef contestant on Top Chef as well as uh, a current judge, I believe. And that kind of weaves in his, uh, his story as an African-American uh, chef a cook and a restaurateur and also an author you know he he famously wrote a couple of years ago um notes from a black uh, a young black chef
2: i share your excitement and interest in those books and we hope to have all of those people on the podcast as well so i think those are are great uh recommendations so thank you all right we're gonna take a break and we'll be back with ken's julia moment Get in touch. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
2: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Ken, what's your Julia Moment?
3: Um, You know, thinking about this, I kind of racked my brain a little bit because, you know, Growing up as a kid in the '70s and '80s, uh, I really connected and found comfort, uh, you know, watching Julia, and you know, just for obviously for millions of people and, and generations, just hearing her voice. It's it's this iconic. It's just an iconic tone, and um, so I definitely you know shared that with with so many people of of growing up and you know watching her um watching her cook and kind of a talk about her her successes and fail- and even her and most importantly her failures in the kitchen um and uh, and you know as I got older I really gravitated towards her, her show with uh jacques Pepin. um but there's a recent kind of recent memory i have and it, and i only thought of it uh a couple of days ago is You know, when I first moved here to the West Coast, um, to Los Angeles, from St. Louis, and being a native New Yorker, um, you know, Julie Child was definitely just this, like, kind of like, almost like this godhead that didn't seem like a real person. Um, But my first trip to Santa Barbara, uh, probably 10, 12 years ago, you know, you drive up there and it's, you know, it's not a long drive, maybe an hour and a half or so. Um, And everybody told me I had to go to La Super Rica, the Taqueria place in Santa Barbara. And what everyone said is why you have to go is because it was um, Julia Child loved to go there. And and it was one of her favorite places to eat. Um, So when you're in line and, you know, it's been this place has probably been around for I'd, I'd say at least twenty, thirty years, if not more. Uh, when you're in line and you're waiting to to place your order and you're kind of seeing um, the cooks back there making the fresh tortillas and and grilling the meats um, and rolling everything up, uh, I kind of would be taken aback and think about Julia as a person and as like you know this this eater and this curious mind of like looking through and looking through the glass and seeing the open kitchen and thinking about like what she would order and kind of like, you know, you're smelling the, those incredible aromas of grilled meat and, and, and onion and uh, chili uh, over the fire. And, and, you know, it really kind of like struck me like, it kind of like made her more real in a sense, Todd.
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'll help you out. For those who haven't been to La Super Rica, it is not a luxurious experience. You uh, generally wait on the sidewalk in the blazing sun. There's no shade offered to you. There's no libation offered to you. And you order at a counter from a menu. And then if you're lucky, there's room in this sort of makeshift porch to sit down or you eat outside so i think part of what ken's talking about is it it's not a highfalutin experience but it is a spiritual experience because the few fu- the food has such a kind of um, purity and freshness that and then the whole thing conspires to make it memorable but it's not the place you would
3: expect julia child have stood in line exactly and you know working for wolfgang uh you know obviously he has fed you know people who, uh, you know, the rich, the famous uh, of all kind of notoriety. And, um, you know, he, he, I remember he would kind of share, you know, oh, you know, Julie was here um, this year, um, you know, this year, this at that moment, he was like sharing kind of like a memory. Um, And that, you know, that was different from actually going to a place that everybody could go to uh you know waiting on the street um yeah usually it's pretty hot when you're waiting out there and and you're just you know just trying to contain contain yourself from ordering everything as you're waiting um just to think of julia as as a person in that line i, I kind of love it
2: that's great thank you so much for sharing that julia moment and, and thank you for joining us today
3: It was a real pleasure, Todd. Thank you so
2: much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. So for when you can get Ken's advice in person to order books or buy tickets for their special events, you can go to NowServingLA.com, and it's at NowServingLA on Instagram. We have an exciting year of programming and events in store in 2022, so make sure you're following us. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. We are getting close to announcing the lineup of exciting and safe Santa Barbara culinary experience in person events for 2022. You might find out whether we have anything going on with La Subarica. So join us in Santa Barbara and throughout the county, May 20 to 22nd. Go to sbce.events and sign up for our mailing list. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network is Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world Next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.